A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens is one of the most well-known and beloved tales of our culture, and we all know it well. The story begins on Christmas Eve. Ebenezer Scrooge is hard at work. He's known for his miserly ways, his disdain for charity, his lack of compassion. And it's on that very night that Scrooge is visited by his former business partner, Jacob Marley, who has been condemned to wander the earth in chains as punishment for his own greed during his lifetime. Marley warns Scrooge that he's on a similar path and tells him he will share the same fate unless he changes, unless he repents. Marley informs Scrooge that he will be visited, of course, by three spirits. The first spirit is the ghost of Christmas past. Scrooge revisits scenes from his own past, including his childhood, youth, and early adulthood. Scrooge sees moments of joy, but also witnesses his own growing greed and the erosion of compassion. Spirit shows Scrooge the young man he used to be, the love that he lost, and the point where he began to prioritize wealth over human relationships. It brings us to the second spirit, the ghost of Christmas present. The second spirit, a hearty and joyful giant, takes Scrooge on a tour of London on Christmas Day. They observe the joy in the festivities of Christmas, including the Cratchit family's modest but happy celebration. Scrooge is particularly moved by the Cratchit family, especially Tiny Tim, the youngest son who is disabled. The Spirit emphasizes the importance of generosity, of family, and of compassion. The third spirit, the ghost of Christmas future, dark and foreboding. The Spirit shows Scrooge glimpses of the future, including his own death. Scrooge witnesses the indifference of others to his passing and the impact of Tiny Tim's death on the Cratchit family. Realizing the consequences of his actions, Scrooge becomes desperate to change his fate. And then he awakens, and it's Christmas Day morning. He's overjoyed to discover that he's still alive. He becomes determined to embrace the spirit of Christmas and to live a life of love and generosity. Scrooge becomes a changed man, treating everyone with kindness, charity, and love. He becomes like a second father to tiny Tim who survives due to Scrooge's generosity. The story ends with Scrooge becoming a beloved and respected member of the community, embodying the very spirit of Christmas. This tale was very personal to Charles Dickens. Dickens left school at the age of 12 to work in a boot blacking factory after his father was incarcerated in debtor's prison. And it's that lived experience that inspired the writing of A Christmas Carol. Throughout his life, Dickens was concerned about the socioeconomic conditions that existed in England during the Industrial Revolution. He criticized the harsh treatment of the impoverished, child labor, and the dehumanizing effects of industrialization. He was a lifelong advocate for reform. So in A Christmas Carol, Scrooge represents the impression of industrialized society, and the Christmas spirit represents a culture, an idealized culture, that is just compassionate and loving. The transformation of Scrooge was therefore 
an invitation to the transformation of everyone in the Victorian age. Now, I know you're perhaps sitting here thinking, we didn't come for an English lit class. What's going on here? Why are you telling me all of this? Well, the carol, God Rest You, Merry Gentlemen, is considered a traditional folk song dating back to the 16th century, making it one of the oldest carols used in the church. But unlike some other hymns or carols, the specific author of the lyrics or the original composer of the melody are unknown. For folk songs, it's common for the author and the composer to be unknown. And often the song evolves over time with various communities making their contribution. But the song became embedded in our cultural imagination because it appeared in a scene from a Christmas carol. A group of carolers sang the hymn on the street corner during Scrooge's visit with the ghost of Christmas present. Now to put this into to modern parlance, it's because the work of Dickens was so trendy that God rest you merry gentlemen went viral. So between a Christmas carol, God rest you merry gentlemen, in Luke chapter 2, there's quite a bit of caroling going on. And the main point of Luke chapter 2 is the main point of the carol, and it's why Dickens used it in his own work. And the main point is this. The good news of Jesus makes us merry. Perhaps that feels simple. Perhaps that feels even trite. But sometimes in life, it's the simplest things that are the most profound. Note the location of the comma in the title. After Mary, before gentlemen. Meaning that the gentlemen are not in and of themselves naturally merry. The song is a prayer that God would rest them merry. In older forms of English, that word rest means to keep or to abide. To keep or to abide in the merriment that God alone provides. The song is therefore this prayer, may God keep us merry. And as we enter the coming weeks, that's a prayer that we all need. That's a prayer for the people in Ukraine. That's a prayer for the people in Israel and Gaza. That's a prayer for those of us who are like me who don't know how to rest. So the holidays can be hard. We have such high aspirations for family visits and then family visits. Whether it's something financial or something vocational, for some of us, this year is not ending the way that we anticipated. For some of us, we're mourning the impact of a medical diagnosis or loss in our lives. For others, we experience a profound sense of loneliness in this season that is supposed to be so full of joy and cheer. So the question becomes, how does this good news, this gospel of Jesus keep us merry? We're going to look at three progressions in the text. Coincidentally, they all begin with the letter F. Fields, fear, and fulfillment. Fields, fear, and and fulfillment. The merriment of the gospel is found in the fields of the shepherds. 
This is such an intriguing part of the nativity. Now besides the shepherds, if you really think about it, the angelic host did not appear to anyone outside the extended family of Jesus. And I'm not sure if you've ever asked this question, but why the shepherds? Why did the angelic host feel it so significant to appear to the extended family of Jesus, no one else but the shepherds? Why not any of the other thousand vocations that existed during the first century in Rome? Why not the leather makers, the iron workers, the masons, the fishermen, the tax collectors, the scholars? Well, there's varied opinion about this, and when you consult different biblical commentaries, you find different answers. Some scholars believe that being a shepherd was a noble vocation within Israel. King David, after all, was a shepherd. He was the greatest king in all of Israel. Yahweh in the Old Testament in a number of places is described as a shepherd to Israel. The shepherd is like the mascot of ancient Israel. Sounds like a worthy vocation to me. Other scholars argue that by the time of the first century, shepherds weren't viewed like this, not with this kind of distinction. Shepherds in the first century were considered houseless, considered outside mainstream society, vagrants wandering the countryside, people who only made it into towns in order to steal people whose testimony was inadmissible in the court of law. So which is it? Are shepherds good or shepherds bad? Well, let me suggest they're, they're neither. In my estimation, these two possibilities go together in order to make a statement in the, in the nativity. Knowing that the shepherd was such a positive figure and symbol in ancient Israel, but in the first century, considered an outcast. I believe that the announcement to the shepherds is a declaration that Israel's exile has come to an end. We've been talking quite a bit about the covenant that God made with David as we were walking through 1 Samuel earlier in the fall. And just as a reminder, that covenant, if David and his sons followed God in their leadership and in their life, it would go well with them. But if David and his sons trusted in other powers, other gods, other political alliances, then God would eventually give them over to their devices. And it's through the whole history of ancient Israel that God put up with quite a bit. He endured many foolish decisions. But eventually God gave them over to their wishes, to the desires of their heart. And in 586 BC, the last remaining tribes of Israel were carried off into exile first to Assyria, then Babylon, then the uh, Medo-Persian Empire, Greece, and by the first century, the birth of Christ, now Rome. And what the people of God discovered is that life in exile wasn't so fun. The supposed greener pastures were actually a wasteland. A contingency of Jews eventually made their way from Babylon back to the promised land. And by the time of the first century, Jews were dispersed all around the promised land, all around the Mediterranean basin. Even though they were inside the land because of exile, they felt like that they were on the outside looking in. Looking in to an empire that was so pervasive. 
an empire whose values were in conflict with Torah. So you can imagine these shepherds feeling just the same way. Working class people, people on the margins, watching the flocks at night, always outside the city, looking into what was going on within the city. This is ancient Israel in exile. A people on the outside, looking inside their own land. And isn't that how sin works in our heart? Just like sin carried Israel away into exile. Sin has a way of carrying us away into exile. Whenever you hurt someone with your words, whenever you give yourself over to an addiction, whenever you pine after something day after day, something that you want but you can't have, Anytime you fail some standard you've created in your head, what do you feel? Alienation. You feel like you're on the outside looking in. And that's what sin does to us. It leaves us out in the darkness, out in the cold, looking on the inside of the warmth of community, community with God and with one another. The angelic host appeared to the shepherds, declaring that Israel's exile had come to an end. It was time now to come in out of the dark and out of the cold. And this wasn't just good news for ancient Israel. Going all the way back to God's covenant with Abraham, this good news was meant for the nations. It was meant for the world. It was meant for me and you. So I want to ask you, what's placing you on the outside looking in? This morning. The good news that came to the shepherds is that their life of exile was over. God turns the mourning of exile into the joy of redemption because of the one who they will find in the manger. This was the good news that came to Ebenezer Scrooge. He had isolated himself on the outside, a life of his own choosing. But there was an invitation that night to more. And so it was with the shepherds. So it was to Israel. And so it is for us. What would be the response to this invitation? That brings us to the second progression in this passage. The merriment of the gospel was found in the fear of the shepherds. And that sounds pretty weird that the merriment of the gospel is going to be found in fear. Let me read verse 9 through 14 of Luke chapter 2 again. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace among those whom he favors. I love this passage because it so clearly helps us distinguish between two types of fear. The first type of fear 
is that fear of death. (laughs) That's what the shepherds feared when all of a sudden the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them amidst the darkness of this field. This is alien abduction sort of stuff. You know, they're out in a dark field. All of a sudden, a beam of light comes down from the heavens. Where are we going here? You can imagine the fear. We experience this kind of fear when we trust in false gods. And here's why. When our heart worships, for example, the approval of others or financial security or our performance in school or in work. We worship our reputation. This is what the carol describes as Satan's power. It's a deception. We've trusted in something else besides God. And as we trust, we also simultaneously realize that we're not secure. It's an unsettling reality. Because even when things are going well, with whatever we're trusting in, we might feel that we're on top of the world, but it doesn't last very long. It's a momentary ecstasy. And then when we fail these false gods, there is an irrevocable sense of loss, of condemnation. And seemingly there's there's no way out. And this makes for an important distinction. You know, I think about my, my role as a father in the life of my kids. And, and when I fail my kids in anger, for example, am I truly sorrowful for the brokenness that I created? Or am I sad that I no longer have the reputation as a perfect dad? The reputation that I hoped for. Where am I looking? Am I looking to myself or am I looking to Jesus? Our trust in false gods creates the fear of death. But there's a different type of fear that characterizes the living God. We find that fear in verse 10 when the angels come and they say, Fear not, for I bring you good news of great joy for all people. And the reason why the shepherds can be merry is because of the child that they will find in the manger in the city of Bethlehem. And he's not just any child. He's described with three titles. This child will first be a savior. In Greco-Roman culture, this term carries a royal connotation. It means king or deliverer. And then secondly, he's described as Messiah or anointed one. That can also be translated Christ. This is the one who is set apart for this task of deliverance. And then third, Lord. This is how Yahweh was translated into Greek from the Hebrew around the time of Jesus. It's the designation for God throughout the Bible. Savior, Messiah, Lord. This is who the shepherds will discover. God who has come amongst us. The one that they will find in the manger will move them from this fear of death to this second type of fear, which is awe and wonder. The shepherds coming to this manger and with shock, with surprise, that somehow God chose them to bear witness to that event. That's what we experience when God enters in. 
And when we look into that manger, we will find the one who is able to deliver us from the fear of death because he alone will define us. And when we fail him, instead of condemnation, there is forgiveness. And instead of exile, there is embrace. This is what he did for us in the cross. And when we abide, when we live our life with him, instead of a fragile and fleeting happiness, he will be a constant source of joy, as Amanda described earlier. You see, the same Holy Spirit that raised him from the dead will raise us from the grave over and over and over again, whatever that grave might be. So this type of fear, the awe and wonder that God would do this for us, this is how we can sing. God rest you, Mary, gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Tidings of comfort and joy. The fields fear and now the gospel keeps us merry because of the way it's fulfilled in our lives. <clears throat> the shepherds left their flocks. They traveled to Bethlehem and they found things just as the angels described it. Notice that the people who gathered around the major responded to the reality of Jesus in different ways. Joseph, his earthly father, was silent. After playing such an integral role in the story thus far, we don't have any recorded response from dad. But then secondly, there's Mary, mom, and as moms do, she treasured, she kept safe, is what this means. All these words, she pondered them in her heart. Hers was a quiet and deliberate reflection. And then third, there were the shepherds. They were bubbling over with excitement. They couldn't wait to tell other people what they had found. They made the connection that Israel's deliverer, God, was on the scene, and now exile was over. And so as we enter the final week of Advent, which of these responses resonates with you? Where do you find yourself? What's the need of your heart? Perhaps God invites you to quiet you know, fall and then the holidays can be such a busy time in our lives. And maybe in the coming weeks, you just need some space, perhaps early in the morning or late at night, just to sit quietly in the presence of God. Just to abide with him. Just to be with him. Maybe like Mary, the gospel invites you to reflection. You know, we're coming to the end of a calendar year, which is a wonderful time to look back at the year and to ponder the ways that God has worked in saving sorts of ways. You know, this is, this is how ancient Israel got so messed up at times. They just failed to remember. You know, what God did yesterday, it's supposed to give us hope for what God will do tomorrow. Mary is the redeemed Israel here because she remembers Perhaps like the shepherds, the gospel invites you to jubilation. 
The shepherds experienced a real and tangible rescue from exile. Perhaps God has brought you through a difficult circumstance this year or led you to repent over a haunting sin. You're you're changing and he's setting you free. This is Scrooge on Christmas morning. He was a changed man. He was experiencing an unprecedented liberation from his own bondage. And now it was time to celebrate. So how will you celebrate? In the fields, amidst your fear, and in his fulfillment, may God rest you, Mary. Let me pray. Oh God, our King, by the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, on the first day of the week, you conquered sin, you put death to flight, and you gave us the hope of everlasting life. Redeem all our days by this victory. Forgive our sins. Banish our fears. Make us bold to praise you and to do your will. Steal us to wait for the consummation of your kingdom on that last great day. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.